Hey y'all, welcome to episode 8 of the Plaid Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Weld. Nine years ago this week, James H. Banning and Thomas C. Allen took off from Los Angeles and three weeks later landed at Long Island, becoming the first African Americans to fly across the United States from coast to coast. Today, we're going to talk about these two aviators and their historic flight. I hope everyone's had a great week. Uh, over here, we've been pretty busy. My brother came into town with his girlfriend last week, so we were out and about doing you know, the Vegas-type things. Uh, after they left, we spent most of the weekend up in the mountains camping, uh, I guess trying to camp. The winds up there were pretty insane. Uh, we ended up just coming back down here to sleep. Uh, after the tent collapsed on us, the kids were kind of done with that experience. So it's a pop-up tent, I guess is what it's called, but it makes it super easy to set up and to tear down. But along with that, it also makes it super easy for the wind to take it down. Uh, and it did that a couple times, and we decided we're just going to go back home, sleep there. Uh, we went back up early the next morning, collected some of our stuff, and uh, we still cooked breakfast over the fire. So overall, it was a pretty good experience, but definitely wish it had been a little less windy. The weather here is getting a lot more agreeable, uh, at least down in the valley. Obviously, up in the mountains, it's still a little windy. Uh, but yeah, monsoon season is finally over. I know we need the rain, but the thunderstorms are making it kind of a struggle to do much flying. Uh, I went up a few days ago with a buddy who, he's also a pilot, shot a few approaches just to stay sharp, that kind of thing. Uh, and it was it was smooth as glass. It was just a beautiful night to be flying. Um, so it's definitely flying season again. Definitely excited about that. On that note, I finally got my instrument check ride scheduled. Uh, should be next month. I'll be going back home to Oklahoma to get that knocked out. A little bit nervous about doing it uh, at an unfamiliar airport in a plane that I don't really have a lot of time in. Uh, Going to still be the same you know, model of airplane, but uh, just being a, something that I haven't flown a whole lot. Um, but the DPE, DPEs out here are just booked out for a good long while, uh, and I think it's going to be the quickest way. I will have a few days to kind of get familiar with the particular plane I'm going to be flying, um, so that's going to be helpful. And really, really, it just comes down to the airplane because if you know if I can't fly an approach safely into an airport that I haven't been to, uh, I really I'm not ready to have my instrument rating. Uh, that's kind of the point of it, being able to fly two places that you haven't been to and still, you know, be safe about it. So hopefully that goes well. Hope to be able to report good news to y'all after the fact. Uh, we'll see what happens. So I did kind of a giveaway last week. Uh, I had some stickers made up with the B25 motor from the podcast cover art, say fluffy landings and the, the plaid font. I didn't order a lot of them. Uh, I was kind of surprised how many people ended up wanting one. I ended up having more people want one than I had actually ordered. So I'm going to put in another order here pretty quick, um, make it a little bigger this time and try to get more of those out. So if you'd like one of those, let me know. Uh, hoping to have some extras to uh, send out, just trying to, you know, say thanks for listening to the podcast and kind of help get the word out, that kind of thing. Uh, I really do appreciate those of you who have written in. The whole thing, this whole podcasting thing is still pretty new, uh, to me at least, and there's still a whole lot to learn. Workload's pretty substantial as well, so when I hear from someone that says, you know, they've enjoyed a particular episode or one of the stories has encouraged them to either start or restart flight training, it really means a lot, uh, and it makes... All of the work worth it, absolutely, 100%. I've really enjoyed putting this together, talking to you guys, and the opportunity just to meet new people and hear all these unique stories and stuff. So thank you guys for that. So if, if you have listened to a handful of episodes, let's say three, 
say if you listened to, to three episodes, you've enjoyed them, I'm going to ask you to please leave a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Uh, it really does go a long way in helping others on the platform, You know, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whatever it is, um, just helping them find the podcast when they start searching for something new to listen to. And of course, if you haven't, be sure to follow on your platform of choice again, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Uh, it's going to help make sure that you get notified every time I release a new episode. Uh, and I think it, that also has some positive effect on the discoverability as well. Uh, not positive, but I think so. Uh, so that could be an added benefit. Now, before we start talking about uh, our topic of the day, I want to give a huge shout out to the Plaid Pilot Podcast, Aviatrix of the Week. Riley flies out of Page Field in Fort Myers, Florida, and she recently earned her commercial pilot certificate. I reached out to Riley, and uh, she's already really busy diving right into her CFI, uh, so that's definitely exciting. So congratulations, Riley, on that commercial ticket. Can't wait to hear about it when you get that CFI knocked out, too. Maybe have you on the show talk a little bit about your experience there. Now, if you or someone you know has recently hit an aviation milestone and you want to come on the show, share a little bit about that experience, or even just get a shout-out, maybe coming on the show is not really your thing, uh, let me know. You can email me at todd at theplaidpilot.com or uh, send me a DM on Instagram at theplaidpilot. Uh, I really would like to hear from you. And there's no pressure. These uh, I don't record these live. Uh, when I record them, it's kind of like a, a Zoom call with somebody else, and it's real low pressure, low speed, can edit out anything kind of thing. So uh, if you're interested in that, let me know. All right, now on to our topic of the week, and I am excited to get to talk about a couple Oklahomans this week. Our story this week starts back in 1900, or possibly 1899. Uh, like some others we've talked about on the show before, we have some conflicting reports about when James Herman Banning was born. Uh, what they can seem to agree about is that it was on November the 5th, um, so sometime around the turn of the century. James Banning came into the world in Canton, Oklahoma. Uh, it was actually Oklahoma Territory at the time. Oklahoma wasn't a state yet. Um, I don't know if he, if his family lived in Canton at the time or why he was born there. We do know that in 1903... Under the Homestead Act, his father, Riley Banning, actually took possession of 160 acres near Kingfisher, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma Territory. Again, still hadn't become a state yet. Now, the Homestead Act was a really controversial piece of legislation, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what is interesting is that this act required that a person live on a piece of land for five years before they were given ownership of it, meaning that at the time of James's birth, his father should have been living in Kingfisher. Uh, now, Canton to Kingfisher is a little over 50 miles, so in the age of, you know, horse-drawn carriages, this would have been a trip. So maybe his mother had traveled to Canton previously, uh, so she would be there to give birth. There may have been some family there or something. We don't know. Uh, at least I wasn't able to come up with the answer. But sometime after his birth in Canton, the family is able to be together on their 160 acres, thanks to the Homestead Act, uh, just outside of Kingfisher. Now, I've already mentioned that the Homestead Act was not a great thing. Uh, on the surface, it did allow people to obtain property from the U.S. government, and in a lot of cases, let them make a life for themselves uh, You know, at, at an incredibly low cost compared to just purchasing the land in a private sale. And in early 20th century United States, racism is very much alive and well. Segregation is absolutely a thing. Um, and it's very likely that Riley Banning would not have been able to give his family the start that they had without this act. Now, that being said, 
you have to look at how the government had so much land to just give away for almost nothing. Um, they'd stolen it from the Native Americans, and in the case of Oklahoma, uh, many of those that they had actually stolen the land from only lived there in the first place because they were forcibly removed from their homes when the U.S. was stealing their land back east. So they sent them on this journey known as the Trail of Tears now um, to Indian Territory, which is modern-day Oklahoma. And I know we're kind of off topic, but it's just a really good example of how multifaceted history can be. So even a lot of times something that seems great on the surface, when you start to look at it, it's actually, you know, there's some darker backgrounds to that. And I think it's important to, to look at those and understand that, you know, history is not just black and white. There's a lot of gray areas. And it's important to acknowledge the good with the bad. So on this piece of land near Kingfisher, Oklahoma, uh, James's parents actually built a small schoolhouse where he began his education. Eventually, he would go to uh, Guthrie, Oklahoma, which is about 30 miles away, uh, where he attended and graduated from Favor High School in 1918. And it's not exactly clear if he lived there permanently, um, if his parents went with him, if he moved there on his own, what that situation looked like. We do know, though, that the next year he ended up moving to Ames, Iowa, and began studying electrical engineering. So James was very well educated. You know, we're talking about 1918 when, you know, especially in rural Oklahoma, if you had an eighth grade education, in a lot of cases, you would have been considered, you know, well-educated. Um, and James had graduated high school and actually studied electrical engineering. So as far as education goes in the early part of the 20th century, he's definitely way ahead of the game. So in 1920, uh, while he's going to school still, he had the opportunity to get a ride in an airplane when one of the flying circuses that traveled around, because that's kind of how they did back then, is you'd have these groups of pilots that would go from place to place, uh, performing stunts and different things like that, giving free, or not necessarily free, uh, but giving giving rides in airplanes and that kind of thing. So one of these stopped in Iowa, and actually James had the opportunity to ride in, in an airplane for the first time. Now, he may have had a love for aviation as a child. He, you know, he was only three or four when the Wright brothers made their first flight. And living in Oklahoma, there were a lot of early barnstormer performances. Um, you know, we know as early as 1911, uh, the Moisant International Aviators were actually flying in Oklahoma City. And, you know, there could have been some earlier. So it isn't crazy to think that he would have seen airplanes or at least talked to people who had uh, but it was after this first airplane ride that he really caught the bug. Now, learning to fly in those times, it wasn't easy. Even if you were a white male, uh, it wasn't like it is today where you go to just about any airport of a decent size and they're going to have you know, at least a small flight training operation of some sort. Um, relatively few people knew how to fly, and even fewer were set up to teach. So if, if you were a woman or African-American, you know this already small pool of people who are willing to teach you, it shrinks even more. So the year after James's first flight, just to kind of give you an idea, uh, the year after his first flight, Bessie Coleman had to travel across the ocean to Europe. I believe she studied in, uh, in France, had to learn French, travel to France, just to find a school that would teach her. Nobody wanted to teach, you know, women or African Americans at the time how to fly. So in 1922... Uh, James starts his own car repair business, um, and eventually he's able to find a pilot 
this gentleman had actually flown in World War One, and he agreed to teach him how to fly. So doesn't sound like it was an actual flying school situation. He just met this guy who knew how to fly an airplane, and he convinced him to teach him. So in 1926, uh, which was actually the year of Bessie Coleman's final flight, he became the first African-American to be awarded a pilot's license from the Department of Commerce. Now, obviously, he wasn't the first African-American to be a licensed pilot. Um, Obviously, Bessie Coleman had her pilot license before then, but the U.S. Department of Commerce hadn't awarded the previous licenses. So, for example, Bessie... Uh, she was awarded hers by the FAI, which stands for Federation Aeronautique Internationale, uh, but with like a French accent, I guess. Those are all French words. He continued to run the auto shop for a couple of years, but in 1929, the Bessie Coleman Aero Club opened its doors in Los Angeles. Um, so this was a flight school built in honor of Bessie Coleman, uh, specifically for African-American pilots, and they offered James the position of chief instructor. At the time, he was one of the most, if not the most, experienced African-American pilot in the country. Uh, and so they wanted him to come kind of lead this school. So while he's there at the school, he purchases this biplane. Uh, he named it the Miss Ames in honor of the town he lived in in Iowa. And then uh, he began flying as a demonstration pilot in addition to his role as chief instructor. So he's kind of flying in air shows um, as well as teaching people how to fly. Now, in uh, 1932, rumors began spreading uh, that there was a $1,000 prize for the first African-American pilot to fly from coast to coast uh, across the United States, and James wanted in on that. So, four days before setting off on this journey, he met pilot, mechanic, and fellow Oklahoman Thomas Allen. Now, Thomas Allen was born in Quitman, Texas in 1907, uh, which happens to be the same year that Oklahoma became a state. He, be, he first became interested in aviation when a, a pilot actually crash-landed in a pasture. Uh, this was in 1918, and so he would have been probably 10 or 11. Um, so this pilot actually paid Thomas and Thomas's little brother to guard this plane from cows in the field because apparently cows will actually, you know, back in this time, the airplanes were built out of wood and fabric and glue, and the cows really liked the taste of the glue. And so if you left an airplane in a field with cows, the cows would eat the fabric and the glue off the airplane. So he, him and his younger brother were hired to keep the cows away uh, until he came back for the airplane. So a year after this cow pasture experience, uh, his family, Thomas's family moved to Oklahoma City. And as he got older, he'd start riding his bike to the nearby airfield, and he actually traded his saxophone. He had a saxophone. He traded his saxophone, and then manual labor, uh, he worked off the rest of the flight lessons. Like James, he eventually uh, would become a pilot and a mechanic, uh, and he was asked to join the staff of the Bessie Coleman Aero Club. I think it's interesting that the two had you know, somewhat similar paths that eventually ended up crossing the way that they did. So, like James, Thomas wanted to earn this $1,000 prize for being the first African-American to fly across the country from coast to coast, but he actually considered doing it solo. He wasn't a fan of many of the African-American pilots that he flew with. He kind of felt like they did too much flying in the newspapers and not enough flying in the air, which I guess is basically like some of the modern-day aviation influencers. Uh, he wasn't impressed by them, and he really didn't want to fly with them either. But he met James, and apparently they hit it off. It may have been that they both lived in Oklahoma, had a lot in common there. Maybe James was just not like a lot of these other pilots uh, that Thomas knew. 
But whatever the reason, they decided that having only known each other for four days, they would take this Frankenstein airplane, and the airplane that they were going to take had been built from pieces and parts of other planes, uh, and they were just going to go across the country in it. And I think that's a pretty bold move. Uh, and they didn't tell anybody about it either, or very few people. They figured they'd take off without all the publicity and the fanfare, and if they failed, it wouldn't be a big deal that way. And if they succeeded, then they could just let their success speak for itself. They didn't really want to, you know, toot their own horn kind of thing, and then end up failing in that endeavor. I understand when dates of like births and stuff early on, when there's some conflicting reports, but this kind of confuses me. Depending on where you look, you can actually find a date for the the takeoff of this flight to be either the 18th or the 19th of September, you know, depending on what sources you're going with. I I find it interesting that there's not, it's not better documented. Um, But either on the 18th or the 19th, they took off from Dicer Airport in Los Angeles. They only had $25, and they knew that they were going to be relying heavily on the generosity of those, you know, wherever they landed to keep them in the air. Now, back then, $25, it was worth a lot more than it is today, for sure. Uh, But they still knew that it wasn't going to get them very far. So they called themselves the Flying Hobos. And, uh, you know, they were saying they're just going to beg their way from place to place. And that's what they did. So the country was still segregated at this point. uh, And they knew landing in the wrong place could be dangerous. So Thomas actually planned the whole trip out in a way that would ensure that they would mainly land in African-American communities or near places where they had friends and family. Uh, they never planned to pay for a place to sleep, uh, but figured they may have to buy some meals. So they took off from L.A. with a crowd of four whole people to see them off. And I'm sure most, if not all of them, doubted their ability to make it all the way to New York. But they still came to see them off anyway. And that's probably why there's such a lack of documentation on whether it was the 18th or the 19th of September, there was only four witnesses. So maybe some said one, some said the other, and that makes sense. So realizing they'd quickly be out of money, uh, they came up with this idea of the gold book, is what they called it. And this was that in exchange for money or lodging or food or gas or whatever, you know, whatever could be donated, they would let people sign the wing of the airplane And in doing that, they'd have their name flown as part of this historic flight from coast to coast, or at least from wherever they were when they signed their name to New York. And a lot of people thought that that was really cool. And in a day and age where a lot of people didn't travel too far from where they were born, to have their name flown all the way to New York City was was a pretty big deal. So one of their first major stops was Yuma, Arizona. Uh, And on the way there, it was so hot, the radiator was actually boiling over. And it's blowing this scalding water back on them. And so Thomas is actually starting to strip down in the plane uh, to try and cool off a little. And they finally land. And the airport attendant actually recognizes James from a few years back. Um, I think two years before they had you know, landed there in Yuma, James had been to that airport before. And when he landed there, he actually hit a pothole messed up his airplane, blew a tire out, damaged the airplane. And that incident caused the airport to get an asphalt runway. So when the guy recognizes James, he's kind of excited to see him again. uh, And he tells him that he's the reason for the improvement. And without missing a beat, James is like, well, that new runway 
should be worth at least a tank of gas, right? And I guess it was because they were able to get back on their way. So this is just the kind of kind of scrappy personality that James had. You know, he didn't have a lot of money on him, but he knew how to talk to people um, and get people behind the cause. And, you know, that would continue to be a theme throughout the flight, helping them make it to New York City. So they've, they've taken off from Yuma. They're trying to make it to El Paso, and they end up running out of gas uh, earlier than planned. And they had to put down in this impoverished New Mexico town. And, you know, it was mostly, you know, they had planned the flight to land near African-American communities uh, who would really get behind what they were doing. And this New Mexico town was, you know, very poor, and it was mostly Hispanic and Native American. And most of the people there had little or no interest in helping them out. They just didn't really care. They're trying to, you know, make it to the next meal and not worry so much about this cross-country flight. But Thomas was able to sell a flight suit and his watch. He made $10, was able to get him some gas, um, and the the gentleman who purchased those items, he let the wife uh, of that gentleman sign the wing, sign the gold book, and they were on their way again. Now, for any of you guys who have flown out west in small airplanes, um, you know that flying out here can pose some unique challenges, especially you know, before it's really cooled down, which September out in this part of the country, it's hit or miss. It can be very hot still. Um, one of the problems that, one of the challenges that it poses is the problem of density altitude. As an airplane climbs, uh, you see the performance start to drop off. And density altitude basically means how high the airplane thinks it is based on temperature and some other things. So on a hot day, you might be at at 4,000 feet or 5,000 feet, but the airplane is flying like it's at 10,000 feet because it's so hot, the air is so thin, that it would be like the air you would experience at 10,000 feet. Basically, it won't want to climb, and it can create some pretty dangerous situations. And at times, this led to the plane only being able to fly a couple hundred feet off the ground while James and Thomas are making this trip. And the airplane, it was supposed to have 100 horsepower, which wasn't too bad. You get a light airplane, 100 horsepower, and it, it'll perform okay. Not great, but all right. Um, but James joked that some of the horses had actually died. Um, so I guess it was an old, worn-out engine, and it wasn't making the power it was supposed to be. So while they're out west, they make their way through dangerous weather, terrain. Uh, obviously, the terrain's a lot higher out west, um, and they're just following beacons um, after dark. You know, the sun goes down, they have to follow these beacons. During the day, they're following railroad tracks to get to the next town. Um, at one point, they end up spending the night in Wichita Falls. James's in-laws actually lived there at the time. So they spend the night there, and they make it to the airport the next day, coming back to take off, and they find a crowd of almost a 1,000 people gathered to see them off. So when they had landed, a reporter had actually seen them come in and put out a story about it, and by the next morning... You know, almost a thousand people are there. They want to be part of that moment. And to help them out, the crowd, real quick, they put together $125 to give to them and send them on their way that way. So that's pretty cool. So from Wichita Falls, they headed uh, north into Oklahoma, which would debatably be the best part of the trip. One, just because it's Oklahoma. And two, they actually had family there. 
Uh, so they stopped in El Reno. They actually began this door-to-door campaign asking people for donations. Um, and even though the people there, they didn't have a whole lot of money, they gave what they could, and they really started filling the wing up with signatures. Um, they started gaining a decent amount of attention, too, while they're there. African-American media of the day started picking up their story and getting the word out about what they were doing. So the generosity they found around El Reno took them to Tulsa, and while they were in Tulsa, they met a wealthy oil man named William Skelly. Now, Skelly had a, an interest in aviation. He owned an airplane factory and I think even a flight school. He wasn't a pilot himself, but he you know, was certainly aviation-minded, and he decided he was going to fund their trip the rest of the way to St. Louis. Now, Tulsa to St. Louis, that's a distance of about 400 miles. So that's, that's pretty significant. Um, and while it, it is a significant portion of the flight, you know, just as a percentage, the most significant part was that north and east of St. Louis, once you got north and east of St. Louis, the trip should become a lot easier. Um, there's going to be more people, more inhabited places to land. Um, there's going to be less animosity towards African Americans. Obviously, it still existed in the north and in the east, but to a lesser extent than you know, in, in some other places in the country at the time. So making it to St. Louis meant that the hardest, most dangerous part of the trip was finally over. Unfortunately, when they got there, they found that having lots of places to land didn't really matter if you couldn't get airborne, uh, and their engine was shot. So luckily, a tech school in the area that they landed in in St. Louis um, offered to rebuild the engine for them. So the students would get some real-world experience rebuilding motors, and the pilots would get a rebuilt engine, so it was kind of a win-win all around. Or at least it seemed like it would be a win-win until they experienced an engine failure near Cambridge, Ohio, shortly after taking off from Columbus. Uh, So James was successfully able to land the airplane, put it down in a field, decided to head to Columbus for parts. I don't know if he walked or he hitched a ride in a car or what that situation looked like. But so he leaves Thomas to sleep in the field with the airplane and I guess guard against cows again, those glue loving cows, just like he'd done so many years ago when he first fell in love with aviation. So not only did James find parts, he found a supplier who let him take whatever he needed free of charge and soon they were back in the air. Now, they had this fear of running out of gas in a place where they couldn't get any and this was a fear that started to plague him more and more every day that they were in the air. And I guess it was just having come so far, they were worried that, you know, it wouldn't, they started to realize how little it would take to shut their trip down when they're so close to having accomplished their goal. So when they landed in Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania, um, they decided to finally take advantage of some of this fame that they'd started to build up. So they called the Pittsburgh Courier, uh, which was one of the country's most popular African American newspapers. So the, the paper came, they had sent someone to pick them up. And they kind of paraded them around the town, uh, and they took them, kind of show them off to the Democratic Party officials uh, for the state. And they quickly decided that they wanted them to campaign for Franklin D. Roosevelt. They figured, okay, you know, these are some guys who are doing something big. If we can get them behind our candidate, then that would be a great thing. So they worked out a deal in exchange for dropping something like 15,000 pamphlets over eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, the Democratic Party agreed to fund the rest of the trip and even paid to restore the plane to a condition so that it could make the return trip to California. Now, I don't think they were going to fund the return trip. They were just going to get it all in order so that it was mechanically sound. 
So the pilots agreed, and over eastern Pennsylvania, they tossed out 15,000 FDR pamphlets all over the place. And they they were just happy to be, you know, have that deal worked out and then get rid of the weight, so they were happy to throw them out. So the pilots agreed, and within a couple days, on October 9th, uh, they were actually circling the skyscrapers of Manhattan. They'd made it. The trip had covered 3,300 miles. Uh, it had taken 41 hours, 37 minutes in the air. Overall, it uh, took them 21 days total. They'd overcome mechanical failures, weather, racism, discrimination, and they'd become the first African Americans to fly across the country from coast to coast. And despite that incredible achievement, within four months, less than four months, uh, James was actually killed in a plane crash at an air show trying to raise enough money to get the plane back to California. So I don't know if the Democratic Party didn't hold up to their end of the deal to fix the plane or if he was just trying to get gas money or what the case was, but he was trying to raise money to get the airplane back to California when he was killed at this air show. He was a passenger in a plane that they wouldn't let him fly because of the color of his skin. He's received surprisingly little recognition for his contribution. Um, However, as of last month, the city of Ames, Iowa, is actually considered naming the local airport in his honor. So that's a cool thing. Hopefully that comes through. They're supposed to be talking about it this month, but I haven't heard how that's gone. Now, Thomas Allen went on to work as a mechanic for a while, uh, and he eventually moved back to Oklahoma, where he served as a guide uh, at an air and space museum in Oklahoma. I couldn't find which air and space museum. There's a couple of them. Uh, There's the Stafford Museum out in Weatherford, and Tulsa also has an air and space museum. Uh, So I'm not sure which which particular air and space museum he worked at, but he did work at uh, an air and space museum for a while. And then at uh, the age of 82, in 1989, he passed away. Both James and Thomas were recognized as aviation pioneers uh, by the Smithsonian in in an exhibit that they had in 1982. So until a few months ago, I'd never heard of either of these guys. And now knowing their story, I think it's pretty crazy that they never came up in anything that I'd read or anything I'd seen online, um, they have a pretty incredible story, and there's not a whole lot, not a whole lot of people out there that that know about them. I don't think so. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed learning about them as much as I have. If you have, be sure to share the episode with a friend and uh, help get the word out. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show and learned something new. If you have, make sure you never miss an episode by following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you've been listening for a few weeks now, please consider rating or leaving a review. It'd really mean a lot to me to see that. Y'all stay safe this week, and as my wife always says, fluffy landings.